Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a special guest from the Maryland State Bar Association, Rena Shah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. As always, a few caveats before we kick off, and that is that the views that are espoused on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its staff, faculty, or employees. And insofar as our listeners divine legal advice from this show, it is not intended for individual use. If you have a legal problem, it's imperative that you speak to an attorney and acquaint them with all the facts to make sure that they can give you the best possible legal advice. With that said, let's get into where Rena Shah fits into the Maryland State Bar Association and the good work she's been doing throughout her career. You are the head of the Maryland Access to Justice Commission, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. How did that happen to you? How did I become the head of the Access to Justice Commission? Well, briefly, I have a history, you know, working on issues related to poverty, human rights, and access issues. So it started quite young. I am an immigrant from India, and so I have lived here since I was nine years old, and I have been very cognizant of, you know, people who have and people who have not. I didn't come with a lot to this country, neither did my parents, but I was able to sort of move through the ranks, but have always been really interested in working on social justice issues. So upon graduating from college, I did the Peace Corps in Nepal. I worked on human rights and community development there. When I came back, I worked on policy issues on the Hill. I have a policy degree that focused on international development. And then when I went to law school, I really looked for opportunities that would essentially allow me to do human rights work domestically. And there's not a lot of opportunities that do that. And I found that placing myself in a human rights organization like Legal Aid, Maryland Legal Aid, was how you can do kind of law in a domestic way that incorporates a lot of the principles of human rights. And essentially core to that is, hey, if you don't have access to you know, the rule of law, you don't have access to justice, then you really cannot vindicate many of the rights that are afforded to you. You know, the laws don't work for you if you don't have counsel. And so that's really how I found myself as the Access to Justice Commission, because what the commission works towards is elevating, you know, civil justice issues. It works towards saying that everyone, regardless of how much money you have, you should have right to you know, access justice, vindicate your rights, you know, be able to have your day in court, make sure you have the ability to sort of, you know, preserve your housing or stay in the country or keep your child. And so that's really, that's where my passion comes from. And that's how I found myself in this position. There's so much that I want to sort of focus on in what you had to say. But first of all, Nepal had to be a fascinating place because they had a Maoist insurgency and it's a fantastically poor place. But I would imagine that that stands sort of in contrast to working in Maryland, which is one of the wealthiest states in the United States. Funnily, you would be surprised at the similarities, you know, so I think in some ways, yes, I did do the Peace Corps in Nepal. I was there for longer than usual. I extended my stay there because I loved it so much. I found it to be one of the richest places actually that I've ever been to, rich in natural beauty, rich in people, and their sort of deep, you know, humanity and generosity. And so it was just a very big contradiction because you do see monetarily that people don't have a lot, but they have richness in other ways. 
And then here, I think because I had focused on international work, you know, and then I was trying to switch to domestic work, but the parallels that I found, you know, I went to law school in Baltimore City and we did, you know, you start in law school by doing clinics and you're serving people, you know, in your communities and, you know, the parallels in how much people also did not have access, you know, to many of the basic necessities, you know, things that basic human needs, you know, things that you need, shelter to survive and food to live. There was a lot that really, in some ways, you know, you don't suspect or you don't expect. And so I have seen that you know, all over, not just in Baltimore City, all through, once I was at Maryland Legal Aid, you know, they had offices all across the state. And we saw that in rural areas, we saw that in urban areas, that people really uh, were struggling a lot in America. So the, the perils are quite similar. And even though Maryland is so rich, it is one of the richest places and most expensive places to live. A recent thing that the commission worked on, which I'll talk more about, but, you know, we were trying to collect data and kind of understand what people are facing in Maryland. And we found that 40% of Marylanders, either 9% live below the poverty line and almost 30% more have a job, but cannot afford basic necessities. So that's 40% of Marylanders. And we live in the richest place, you know, in America, one of the richest states. So there's a lot of people struggling here as well. I can imagine the COVID situation has created even greater problems and compounded the ones that existed before. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. You know, in our work, we really look at the civil justice system and a lot of people don't even know what the civil justice system is, you know. I mean, most people, I think, if you watch TV or if you watch any kind of those law and order shows or any other kind, there's hundreds of them that, you know, murder mysteries or whatever, that you, you get a sense about this system called the criminal justice system. And people, you know, pretty much think, okay, there's this one justice system. And you hear, you know, if someone is about to get arrested, you hear the cops saying, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you can and say will be used against you in a court, or you have a right to an attorney if you cannot afford one. And just based on what comes through popular culture and what people take in, you know, people think that, hey, if you're about to get evicted and lose your house, or, you know, you're in a child custody matter, or, hey, I can't get my unemployment benefits, like people think, oh, maybe I'll have a right to an attorney because I can't afford one. And these are really important things. But, hey, there's this other system. It's called the civil justice system. You know, it's not you know, the state is coming after you because you committed a crime. It's usually two individuals or an individual versus a company. It's private that comprises the civil justice system. And those kinds of, you know, conflicts, essentially, that may end up in court, may end up in an administrative agency, those kinds of conflicts, you don't have a right to an attorney, right? So I think one is just understanding that there is the civil justice system. And then two, when COVID hit, you will notice that so many of the headlines in the newspapers, right? There's gonna be a tsunami of evictions, medical debt is soaring, you know, people are obviously so many people passed, unfortunately, and family had to deal with probate issues. What happens to their property once they passes? Did, you know, if you're in a hospital, did you have a medical directive or a financial power of attorney? These are all issues or 
you know, maybe you lost your job. Obviously, that's the thing that everybody knows about. You lost your job, you had to file for unemployment benefits, maybe you had to file for food benefits, or maybe you had to get Medicaid because you lost your insurance at your job. All of these issues actually fall within the civil justice system. And we know COVID is a health disaster. We know that it's caused an economic crisis, but it has also caused a civil justice crisis because many of the things that people are facing coming out of COVID are directly related to the civil justice system. So we not only see an increase in volume of the amount of people that need help, because this is the first time they're going through this system, but there's just so many other barriers, information barriers, you know, not enough people even know where to get help. Once they figure out where to get help, help might not be there because this community who offers help to people who can't afford an attorney is chronically underfunded. So they may have to turn away people. Information may not be available in a way that you can understand it, you know, in plain language or in a language that you understand. So there are many things that COVID has exacerbated related to access to justice and the civil justice system. And so I'm sure there's an easy solution to that, right? <laughs> well, if, uh, you know, we have spent the last, you know, we were very fortunate, the Access to Justice Commission, to enter into a very high-level partnership with the Maryland Attorney General. The issue was so complicated, and there were so many issues that we really needed to address related to COVID and the civil justice system that the Attorney General took the step, took the leadership to say, we really need to look at this more carefully. He started a task force, and we were the lead partners. Um, the Access to Justice Commission, with the support of the MSBA, were the lead partners with the Attorney General in you know, doing the work of this task force. We launched in June of 2020, and our advisory committee was composed of almost our entire congressional delegation, so both Senator Van Hollen, Senator Cardin, and all of the members of you know, our congressional dele delegation except one were part of that. And we had about almost 45 you know, high-level leaders in all different parts of the state that worked on different issues, not just legal issues, you know, bankers and real estate developers, other folks with different perspectives were brought to bear by the attorney general on these topics because they were so complicated and entangled. We ended up then having 10 committees on the task force to look at specific issues, including housing and consumer and you know life and health planning and so many others. And we had about 300 volunteers that came on, all experts. And so, you know, so much work was done to really come out with recommendations that we think, how can we improve the system? How can we make it easier for people to go through the system? How can we make the law fairer? And what are the changes that we can actually make to make a difference in people's lives right now? We came out with almost 60 recommendations in this report that was released in January of 2021. And we are in the legislative session right now pushing for a lot of these reforms. We know of at least 30 to 35 bills that came directly out of our work that are moving through the Maryland legislature right now. And that, you know, will make a difference when people encounter the civil justice system, because our goal is if you encounter the civil justice system, it should be accessible, it should be fair, it should be equitable. And that, that's what these reforms are working towards. It sounds like a very complex problem 
one of the things lawyers tend to do in this state is keep track of things through the legal newspaper, the Daily Record. And I've read some stuff in the Daily Record kind of talking about trying to create some sort of right to counsel, particularly, I believe, in landlord-tenant cases. Our listeners are not necessarily the most legally sophisticated group, but they're all people, I think, with good hearts and good intentions. And so there is a distinction. Criminal law, you are entitled to a lawyer pursuant to Gideon versus Wainwright, which is a famous Supreme Court case from ages ago. There is no equivalent case for civil activities, is there? There is not. That is correct. So if something is going to occur, at least locally in our state, it's going to be either a function of legislation that enables it, or it's going to be the result of overwhelming response from volunteers, I would imagine. Yeah, so there are different ways to tackle the problem, and you are absolutely right. There is legislation right now, and it was actually a recommendation of the task force, and the Access to Justice Commission has worked previously on thinking about a right to counsel and how to implement it in Maryland for cases that involve basic human needs. So right now, the legislation that's working its way through the Maryland General Assembly has to do specifically with landlord-tenant issues and evictions, because what is forecast is that there is going to be almost 320,000 Maryland households that may be at risk of losing their housing due to an eviction by the end of 2021. So staggering. Staggering. This is staggering, and this is something that policymakers really need to look at. And, you know, the right to counsel is an intervention, it is a, a disruption to the system that actually yields results. So, there have been other places, municipalities, New York City was the first, but they did a study and found that actually, if we give people lawyers, who cannot afford them in eviction cases and test what happens, they found a steep reduction in evictions as a result of giving people lawyers. And of course, there's a cost. And so this was, uh, you know, there are studies that show cost benefit. So yes, there's a cost to giving people an attorney, but the savings to both the municipality and the state are huge. Because what do you save when people don't get evicted? One, you don't disrupt people's lives. And when you get evicted, it's not just, okay, I lost my house. One, you lose a sense of home. Second, there are all of these ripple effects in everything else. So your children's education is going to be disrupted, right? You may have health conditions that maybe you cannot take care of if you have to live in a shelter or are put in some other place where there's going to be disruption to your health, disruption to your credit. You may not be able to be rehoused if people see this sort of on your you know, record. So there's many disruptions that happen as a result of eviction, but then there's also a lot of costs, right? So yes, the state has to pick up shelter costs, and especially if you're in the middle of a pandemic, what kinds of things were states and counties doing? You don't want people out in the street because it actually increases the incidence of COVID and it increases. There was a Johns Hopkins study that showed that not only cases of COVID increase as a result of eviction moratoria being lifted, but deaths also increased. So there is a direct relationship between evictions and public health and safety. And so you would have to shelter people in maybe hotels and not in congregate settings. So there's a cost to that. So essentially these cost benefit analysis, what they show is that if you invest in people having an attorney at the outset 
And, you know, a lot of people argue, well, you know, aren't rent court cases so simple, right? Like you pretty much owe the rent (laughs) or you don't, right? Like simple. No, it's not simple. Even before COVID, it was not simple, right? Because as an attorney who worked on housing issues and did rent court at Maryland Legal Aid, If you are low income, you will have local law, you will have state law, you will have federal law that applies to your case, you will have contract law, you will have case law, you have all kinds of things that you have to bring to get bear on your case. And there was a study in Baltimore City that showed that tenants who came to rent court, for example, you know, they 80 over 80% of them would have a defense to the case, a defense that, you know, would stop them from getting a judgment against them. However, only about 8% were able to raise the defense if they represented themselves in court, right? So most people do not know that they have a defense to an action. It's hard for people, you know, you wouldn't know with all of these different laws bearing down. And especially with COVID, there's executive orders, there's these kinds of orders, there's CDC orders, there's orders coming from many different places. It's hard for attorneys to keep track, let alone people who represent themselves in court. And so, you know, people are not able to raise defenses, but when they do have an attorney, 92% of people are able to avoid disruptive disruption, right? So it is- Can I throw a counterpoint at you for just a second? Sure, absolutely. I was chatting the other day with a friend and we were talking about the possibility of student debt, you know, reduction that maybe the Biden administration will say a certain amount of your student. And he was kind of like, what about the people who've paid off their student debt? Isn't that unfair to them? My response was, well, maybe it is, but anytime there is some new benefit, there are people in the past who didn't get it And it's a forward kind of thing. And in the same respect, I know that this person would also say to me, well, what about the landlords who are paying the mortgages and blah, 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 blah. And and it is a balancing act and there are trade-offs. And I guess I wonder if there's also consideration for, you know, somebody who's worked and saved and bought a small house as a rental property and suddenly they're not getting rent for an indefinite period. And I just wonder in response to those people on issues like that, Is there something that sensibly can be said? Absolutely. And we are very cognizant. And, you know, by no means is this, you know, we are only pro-tenant and that's it. We look at the big picture. And, you know, one of the things that the task force also worked on, and we advocated with the governor, and we advocated with our federal delegation, is to make sure that there is rental assistance. Because, you cannot just have moratoria on evictions or you cannot have these things that obviously would allow people to stay in a property without taking care of the landlords. I mean, that is part and parcel of this. What we want is a fair system. We are part of a coalition that is for promoting the right to counsel. We also have people who disperse rental assistance to you know landlords. What we don't want is we advocated for rental assistance. So we think landlords should get paid plain and simple, but we don't want a system. And we know that we see people like this where landlords get paid and they can still evict the tenant, which is happening. This is happening. This is not something that is not happening. This is happening. So we have cases that we have seen and advocates tell us that there are loopholes. So protections, you know, protect certain types of cases, but then landlords can still collect the rental assistance 
and still evict a tenant. And that is all the more important why you need an attorney by your side. 1% of tenants in landlord-tenant actions are represented, 1%, versus over 96% of oh, yeah. So there's just a differential in terms of knowledge, in terms of your ability to speak up, in terms of power, when you go into a process. Now, when you add the COVID implications, right, there are a lot of cases that may move to remote setting, right? And people, you know, obviously courts are trying to manage how many people come to court, how do they manage the spacing, the distances, the social distancing, et cetera. When you move to a remote setting, low-income people are even worse off because sure. one, they may not have the technology. Two, they may not live in an area that actually has internet or Wi-Fi. We actually, in this new tool that we put out, the, the story map, we were able to show a map where upload speeds in different parts of Maryland are different. And so if you don't have the proper upload speeds, you cannot participate in a Zoom call like I am doing now. And so if the rest of the group, right, the attorneys on the other side, the judge, everyone else is participating via video conference, but you are only able to participate via phone, there's a loss, right? People cannot see you, cannot judge. And so you're just, you know, at a disadvantage in those ways. So COVID has also brought on additional complexities to an already complex system. And it's all the more reason that we need to figure out how can we infuse fairness in this system? This is a, this is a moment. It's not like these issues did not exist before COVID. They certainly did, and they will exist afterwards. But this is a moment where we can see palpable you know, opportunity for change to correct something that has been wrong for a long time. Couple things. I would imagine that lawyers will want to be paid, and even the most noble of lawyers, and I mean, will want to be paid for this. And has any kind of study been done with respect to what it would cost to have counsel in, say, every landlord-tenant case? And then, you know, because there's myriad other things that people really need lawyers for. And I guess that's my question: is really, well, where's the money come from? This? Yeah. Definitely. So part of it is really through the cost savings, right? So in, a, in one jurisdiction, there was a cost benefit analysis for a jurisdiction in Maryland. And the cost savings was sort of like, you know, you spend 5 million and you save 24 million or something like that. So, you know, the cost has to be captured from the savings of what you are not spending on the other end. Once people have gone through this traumatic experience and you're trying to put them in shelter or put them in other kinds of housing or they have medical issues or whatever. So the cost savings is there. And currently, obviously, there's different mechanisms that we can think about in terms of funding. One is through some of these maybe federal funds that are coming in. Is there a possibility to use some of those funds towards a right to counsel? Two, the you know, state, just through the cost savings, can allocate a line item. A lot of different states, it hasn't happened on a statewide level, but I think municipalities or cities have been able to take a portion and just make a line item in their budget to say, this is, you know, we're saving from here, we're going to put it into this and invest it there. And then there's different funding mechanisms that are being proposed right now to say maybe there should be, you know, surcharges on filings that could be used for this purpose. They have been used previously for legal services generally that, you know, is not attached to a right to counsel. So they're looking at whether it could be used for this purpose and attached 
budget tool, right, to council right now. What, what about something like a percentage of the rent that landlords charge going into some sort of fund? And I mean, I don't know, in Maryland, for criminal prosecutions, we have state's attorneys who are the prosecutors, and then there's public defenders who are often the lawyers of last resort for those purposes. There's the county attorney who represents the civil interests of the county and that sort of thing. Is that the model we're talking about, or are we more inclined to be talking about private attorneys doing this stuff, or is it some sort of mix? Yeah, I mean, I think it likely would not be private attorneys. I think what we're thinking about right now is that there's about 40 to 50 legal services organizations that are funded by the Maryland Legal Services Corporation, which is sort of the top funder of these legal service entities across the state. And they have sort of the expertise in doing these kinds of cases. So if we are able to scale up, you know, funding to the Maryland Legal Services Corporation, have a special fund there for eviction-related matters and right to counsel, then they have the ability to fund these other organizations that are already out there in the field doing this work, but it would require scaling. So it would be public interest attorneys that are coming to legal services organizations where they can be trained up and sort of put out in the field. You know, there was, you know, a provision previously where maybe the attorney general's office could be involved, et cetera. So I think there's different ways to think about it, but I, you know, it does seem to, I think it works best. Obviously, we, part of our, you know, recommendations also included an increase in pro bono, but we are not looking at sort of, you know, asking attorneys to volunteer their time pro bono to solve this massive issue. It really has to be an investment. It has to be hiring of attorneys to kind of take this up. And then I think the bills also have a period, a phase-in period of about four years. So it will take a while to scale up. It's not going to be able to happen immediately. But I think once scaled, these legal service organizations would be able to handle the load. As is typical for this show, we're about to run out of time and I have 400 more questions for you. But I will ask two. One, there's this wonderful map that you have. And, and I just wonder how the public can use it to to learn more about this issue and about what can be done to help people. Oh, thank you. Yes. So the Access to Justice Commission is very excited to release this tool. It's called the Civil Justice for All Story Map. It's up on our website at mdaccesstojustice.org. And what you can see through this is one, we wanted to bring together the stories, the statistics, and everything about the civil justice system sort of in one place because nothing like that exists. A tool like that does not exist. So you can go here, you can learn more about all the things that are involved in the civil justice system, how it affects people, what kinds of populations are more vulnerable to be entangled in the civil justice system, et cetera. But the cool feature of this that really hasn't been done before is that the civil justice system is not data informed. And what we really wanted to work towards is establishing a baseline of data. What are the different case types that are involved in the civil justice system? We brought them all together in one place and we have this very cool interactive map feature. Yeah, and so you can go on the maps and you can actually say, okay, how many of these cases, how many evictions are happening in my county? How many failure to pay rent cases? How many consumer debt cases? How many abuse cases are happening in my county? And then how does my county compare to other counties? So we took the extra step to make sure we know that more populous counties might have more case numbers, but that, you know, with their lower population, we wanted to make sure we made it easy for people to compare 
across counties. So this will allow you to compare across counties. We also know that there are individuals who are more vulnerable. So we sort of separate out those populations and I have a specific map on, do you have more veterans in your jurisdiction or do or you seniors. have persons, seniors or disabled individuals because they will face more entanglement with the civil justice system. And you can look at those populations for your particular county and compare them across counties. We also wanted to start a baseline for pre-COVID and post-COVID indicators, because we know that there are some things like unemployment, SNAP benefits that face those huge spikes right away when COVID came on. And we sort of are tracking those, but we know that in courts, there's going to be other spikes. So we want to be able to monitor them so that we can see the differences in case numbers. And so we have numbers and graphs and charts and things that we hope to keep updated that show you the difference pre and post COVID as well. We hope that the public uses this because this is the first of its kind tool that allows people to see these things. And we hope they support because we think that the lack of civil justice data is actually a barrier to access to justice. So we hope they support the use and creation of more of these tools and helping us keep this updated because it does take a lot of effort to pull all of this together. And there's a lot of data we wanted to include that just really wasn't even available. So that's the next frontier is to, you know, advocate for more of this data to become available so we can share it with the public. Well, I regret to say that our time is up, but I very much enjoyed speaking to you. And I think yours is a wonderful, noble cause that we should all be trying to further. And I'd like to thank Rena Shah for appearing on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Buck. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.